Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Michael Chakraverty. And I'm Mark Watson. And welcome back to Menkind, where we chat to a range of brilliant guests about masculinity. Some of them are men, some of them aren't men, and some of them aren't particularly bothered either way. We're interested in men. Yes, obviously you are. And what makes them tick? Where does masculinity come from? How does it affect us? And how could we be better? We might not get a final answer, but we'll have a bloody good go at it. Won't we, Michael? Oh, we'll do our best. Morning everyone, whether this is Monday or whatever day of the week you're listening to it. If you were hearing this, Michael Chakraverty is dead. No, he's run the marathon. Totally different. Uh, But that's why he is not in this intro. I am doing a solo intro and outro in recognition of the fact that Michael has devoted his week and a good portion of uh, this year to this massive feat. And by the way, uh, we've been tracking him. We know he has finished, so I'm not massively tempting fate here. He isn't actually dead. <laughs> Although Michael has run the marathon, you can still donate, by the way. He ran it for Alzheimer's Society, extremely good cause, goes without saying. And uh, those sponsorship links will still be live and you won't exactly be able to miss them on his socials if I know that man, which increasingly I do. Anyway, look, of course, he's in the podcast episode as usual, which we'll come on to in a moment. I want to quickly thank a new patron. We have a new patron called Eerie, I think. It could be Eerie, but we're going with Eerie. So thank you very much. To you, I think Michael would probably at this point like me to say that if you want to join our patron, uh, you can do it at patreon.com forward slash Mankind podcast. Michael says something odd instead of slash. He says he, he phrases it differently. But anyway, I am now in charge because I've decided not to run 26 miles on this occasion. Now, today's guest is uh, none other than, in fact, quite literally, Owen Jones. Owen will be very well known. To some of you, certainly those of you with more of an online presence, he's a um, broadcaster, political activist, prolific political tweeter, and many other things besides. I will simply say that I think you will enjoy the following conversation. And without further ado, I hand you over to, well, myself, but also Michael, and also the guest, Owen Jones. Okay, so this week we have the lovely Owen Jones with us, as well as Mark. Mark's always here. He's got a couple of exclamation marks after his name on Zoom today to make him feel a bit more exciting, I suppose. Was that the intention? It's true. I've changed my Zoom name to Mark Watson and then two exclamation marks. I just think at my age, it's nice to sort of show that you've got something new up your sleeve. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. We're joined, though, by a guest that is more in your kind of age bracket, I should think, Michael. Yes, we have Owen. Hello, Owen. Who are you and how are you? Well, actually, I'm a geriatric millennial. You're a GM. I am a GM. 36. Oh. Oh, to be fair, you're closer to my age than Michael's. That's a real boon. Mark's face just lit up. <laughs> oh, I'm delighted. It's because my face is permanently stuck in Macaulay Culkin from Home Alone, the first one. 
sort of physically. <laughs> so therefore, that allows me to transcend the normal aging process. You are known for being young looking, but like 36, that's old. I'm delighted. <laughs> I mean, even the fact that you can remember the Home Alone franchise puts you in a different bracket from Michael. <laughs> <laughs> Watched it in the bloody cinema. <laughs> Maybe we'll have a chat about Boddington's Cream of Manchester before the end of this. <laughs> I love those adverts. Exactly, Owen, but try getting Michael onto that. It's a blank. <laughs> Honestly, no idea. But who are you apart from a geriatric millennial? Oh, yeah. Oh, right, yeah, that. So I am... <laughs> a stupid gobshite called a lot worse yeah i am a guardian columnist and i write books of varying quality we all do that to be fair yeah, i mean <laughs> i a stupid lefty churning out semi deranged left-wing nonsense that's just what i believe yeah so columnist author and deranged lefty is how we'll have you on the blur again my twitter mentions would have it today though i'm slightly distracted because i've had the moderna vaccine the second shot very excited but i always occasionally get the song stuck in my head and i don't know why it's oh baby i love your ways every day you know the song i mean yeah i know the song but i didn't expect that <laughs> Can't get it out of my head. Want to be with you night and day. Night and day. <laughs> I thought it was going to be a song that in some way related to the vaccine, like maybe the word modern in it or something, but no. You... Or like a Dolly Parton song would have made sense. Or maybe Dolly. What I'd give to have Jolene stuck in my head right now. <laughs> and it's only that bit. And then it goes every day. I have that with the oh, whoa, 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 woes from Peter Andre's Mysterious Girl a lot. Difficult. I get that with this Celine Dion one from Titanic, just there. Ah, <laughs> and that's it. What we might call earworm fragments. That's a nice title of a podcast, I think began here thanks Aaron. you mentioned twitter there owen you are fairly prolific on there how do you deal with that because i mean you get it in the net quite a lot for being as you put it so deranged yeah i don't know you very well but i reckon you're the person i know that gets the most shit every day of your life on twitter i mean it's sometimes shared about because sometimes i'm like oh nish kumar's trending that that deflects from me for the day <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> nish will take the bullets for today yeah exactly or ash Sarka, and then i read her mentions and i'm like oh god they're even worse than never mind oh they're depressing yeah it's the same people often mm. it's weird because i've got like instagram right which is just like a happy place everyone's yeah. just really nice yeah. it's like oh i love your cats the only time there's an exception is once when i posed with a plate with some salmon on it Uh-oh. and it turns out a lot of people following me because my cats two beautiful cats and so i think i've disproportionately got left-wing animal lovers who tend to be more vegan than not yeah so uh... they got angry about that but in a kind of like <gasps> so disappointed what's conspiracy rather than you fucking lefty piece of shit I'm going to rip your head off and I'm going to bomb your flat yeah it seems like on Instagram someone will say ah oh, cute cat maybe you should consider feeding it this whereas on Twitter someone will just be like shit cat shit person. yeah <laughs> your cat's a Marxist basically <laughs> yeah I've tested this because I took a picture of my cat and did a little kind of my cat and then Twitter were like there being four street cats in Venezuela you scum it's incredible just yeah. come on give me one we did pointless together and we won we did and I posted a photo of saying this is me and Owen Jones with our pointless trophy and I only got the tiniest subsection of yours but even then there's a few people going yeah you and Owen might have won pointless but I'll tell you who's losing the victims of this political system and you're like mate Richard Osman can't solve that he's got a lot on his plate <laughs> I suppose what Michael was getting we might as well raise it is does it not have an effect I know your job is to provoke people in a way but when you started doing what you do you can't have expected the volume of abuse surely I mean no I guess partly because I didn't want to do what I do now I didn't want to be a writer or have a platform or whatever I was just for me I just started off being like well I've got these opinions 
in my head, I'm still just some random blogger with like five followers. You know what I mean? My self-perception hasn't changed in a sense. So it wasn't an ambition. And I wrote this book 10 years ago called Charles, The Demonization of the Working Class. Got rejected by every publisher going. Then a small left-wing publisher took it on. Then it did a lot better than people expected because people want to talk about class again. And then from there, it was like, oh, do you want to come on TV to talk about your book? And then it was like, would you come on to talk about other stuff? For a long time, people did fixate on the fact I did look like Macaulay Culkin from Home Alone. <laughs> I mean, a lot of it was people who I would describe as more fashy than not. So I used to get a lot of kind of like far-right activists, Tommy Robinson types. They sort of shared my dress. At that point, I was like, not ideal. Mm, no. Then it kind of trickled into the real world. So like, not in person, like in person, I always get people just being really nice. Yeah, you're very likeable. Well, thank you, you know, I've just, look at my stupid prepubescent face. <laughs> yeah, you couldn't punch that. <laughs> well, they did. That's the problem. So it escalated. Oh, let's carry on. Famously, they did, Mark. <laughs> Apart from that one time, yeah. <laughs> to be fair, factually, they didn't. I was uh, celebrating my birthday and they, uh, Karate kicked me from behind. The trial of that was quite interesting. This is related to the theme of your show because the ringleader, his house was full of neo-Nazi material, SS flag. I know this doesn't sound like it should be funny. Okay. And he was asked, why did you have all this Nazi stuff? And he was like, I'm a hoarder. But what was funny was he brought in his best friend as a character witness and his best mate was asked, and I presume they rehearsed this before the trial, would you say he's of trustworthy character? And the best friend was like, yeah, in fact, so much so that if I had an attractive girlfriend and I left him downstairs talking to her and I went to bed, I'd trust him not to sleep with her. Oh. And that was his baseline of how trustworthy he was. That was his yardstick. <laughs> that was his yard- also, I don't think I'm a hoarder is good enough if you've got loads of Nazi memory. That's more if you've got loads of tomato ketchup sachets or something. <laughs> But then in real life, I was doing broadcasting in College Green near Parliament and MAGA-wearing people would, like, scream abuse mm. there. And then I'd get these far-right football hooligans kind of trying to punch me and stuff. So that's when it was more like, oh, this stuff online, which I was a bit maybe blasé about. I was just like, these are just pathetic. Does translate to actual physical threats. Yeah, yeah and you can see how people radicalise. And some of it's quite interesting because there used to be this fake Guardian headline generator. Uh-huh, yeah. And they would literally just make up random Guardian headlines, which I genuinely think were responsible for about a third to a half of my death threats. Wow. Yeah. It started as just a fun Twitter joke that you could do and then it becomes... Somewhat darker. You forget that people don't always have the abilities to tell between the jokes. Yeah. So this is who you are, Owen, basically a guy that has taken an enormous amount of flack just for expressing your beliefs in public. You mentioned that you didn't always want to be this person. Who did you want to be? Yeah. I wanted to be an astrophysicist. And look at you now, Owen. I know, so close. (laughs) I think I wanted to be an astronomer for a while, but I've definitely got dyspraxia. Right. So I don't think that would have worked so well in space. (laughs) We've got a formal first question that we normally do ask. Lots of people answer this question at school. That's where their first brush with masculinity kind of happened. For you, where would you say your first brush with masculinity was? Yeah, what did you first think about it as, you know, a thing? It's difficult to pin down one moment. I think maybe a couple of things. I've got two elder brothers and my late dad. I used to share a room with my middle brother, bunk beds and it's quite funny because he's four years older than me and like he used to watch the x-files i wasn't allowed to watch it because it was too late and he came in basically gave a blow-by-blow account of 
each episode, which was as long as the episode. <laughs> but they were all very into football and I wasn't. And I think they could bond over that in a way that I didn't. Mm. I found it astonishing. My dad's father was born in 1895. So that's my granddad. God, that is... It's weird, isn't it? That does stop you in your tracks a bit, yeah. Is that the Victorian era? It is, just late Victorian, yeah. Yeah, yeah. still a few years to go in the Victorian era. So my granddad was born in the 19th century and died at sea in 1951 when my dad was six and my dad was an only child he grew up in merseyside and he basically came from a different world from me and Mm. hogging maybe wasn't his thing opening up wasn't his thing really but i think school so i grew up in stockport and my primary school i remember it was yeah it was tough because i think a lot of the people i grew up with came from often very difficult backgrounds you know I was the only boy to go to sixth form, let alone university and mm. primary school. Like, more went to prison. It was quite aggro. I shouldn't think they put that in the school's prospectus, probably. <laughs> Something to put there. No, bless him. They did a great job. I owe them a lot. But in school throughout growing up, you know, everyone would say gay is a pejorative. Yeah. This idea for me of gender policing, I think, I didn't know what that was when I was younger, but it was obvious. You expected to um, conform to certain interpretations of what is to be a man. And if you deviate from it, then it's like you're going to suffer verbal or even physical consequences. So if you don't get into enough fights, if you don't talk about women in a certain way, if you're not sporty enough, if you're too academic or whatever, so you learn not to do that. You learn like if you do well at school, you don't talk about that. People throw around, you know, I probably indulged in some homophobic stuff when I was younger because you do that to prove that's what being a guy is. So I think I found that probably quite oppressive but you had to conform to it, didn't you? Yeah, we have a lot of chats on this podcast about how people experience masculinity in the first instance as just something they had to either conform to or resist. I mean, when did you know you were gay, for a start? If it's not too direct a question. No, 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 it's not at all. At what point did you start thinking, well, this just isn't me, I'm something else? Well, I fancied David Duchovny in The X-Files. All right. I did. First guy I fancied. <laughs> and only through descriptions as well, because you weren't watching it. Your brother was describing him to you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just the pen portraits were enough. <laughs> you had a vision of him in your head. He's <laughs> very artistic. So he just drew a little, I was like, yeah. He was actually drawing Gillian Anderson. I got really confused. Anyway. To be fair, we all fancied Gillian Anderson at one point in our lives. I actually did kind of fancy Gillian Anderson. We've all been there. Really? Is that a kind of bipartisan thing? I think so. Well, have you? I, yeah, but I'm intrigued by the idea that as gay men, you might also. But she falls under the icon category, doesn't she? Yeah. Right, okay. Interesting to know. Yeah. I mean, I fancy like Penelope Cruz. Anyway, I'm deviating, aren't I? <laughs> yeah, but this is not just a minute. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think I had this looming panic probably when I was a teenager, which was oh for fuck's sake kind of life's hard enough and then you realise I definitely find the same gender attractive you're like something's gone terribly wrong here on top of all the problems I've already got as a exactly. teenager is basically your disposition yeah. yeah it was like life is a tough gig do I really need this extra thing yeah. and it was the time you've got to remember I do think people forget how swift things have changed even though a lot has a huge amount to go but you know in the late 90s the British Social Attitude Survey which measures what people think every year By 1998, 50% of people thought homosexuality was always or mostly wrong. Because I think people look back at the 90s and think, oh, that's when everything kind of went a bit more liberal. But actually, Mm. you know, the anti-gay laws were still in place. Section 28 was introduced when I was four, which banned the promotion of so-called homosexual lifestyles in schools. So I didn't get any LGBTQ education, of course. There was rampant homophobia on a daily basis. Straight men get homophobic abuse if they're seen to deviate in any way from being a man. Mm. Homophobia is just everywhere. You know, you didn't really get people on TV who you could relate to who were gay. I remember reading those books you get, which are like... 
you're growing up and this is what puberty is. It's common for same-sex feelings and then you grow out of it. So I was like, I'll just grow out of this at some point. Right. And then when I went to university, I had a girlfriend for a year. So I only came out... I came out as bisexual and then people do the whole buy now, gay later, which bisexuals have to endure. But I came out when I was 20 to my friends. I came out when I was 24 to my parents at Christmas Eve. My parents are Trotskyists. I did the cowardly thing. I said to them both, there's someone I want you to meet. He's called my boyfriend's name. Right. And my mum malfunctioned, bless her. She went, that's okay, that's okay, that's okay, that's okay. That's She wouldn't stop saying it. <laughs> so I had to say something. So I went, and he went to Eton. They both went, oh no! Ah, Matt, that's much worse for Trotskyists. <laughs> yeah, they didn't like that. No, they were fine about it. By the way, Owen, the survey that you mentioned, what was it called? The social... The British Social Attitude Survey. And then have we got stats now? Are they still doing it? Yeah, yeah. I'm just interested in what the figure would be now. It's about 20%. So it's still a lot. But a big difference. And that's people who admit it, because now it's socially seen as not the thing to admit to it i suppose right. so yeah but in theory that's one in five people you walk past so that's why people don't hold hands generally if they're in same-sex relationships sure. in the street yeah. it's interesting you were saying i think lots of queer people will have engaged in homophobia when they were younger and kind of growing up in that environment where there was a lot going on and you kind of felt like you were conforming to this kind of idea of what masculinity was to then coming out later what changed your perception of what masculinity in you could be B. It's quite a big question. No, it's a good one because, to be honest, I had a real problem with internalised homophobia. Right. You know, most of my friends, if not almost all my friends were straight men and I was proud of that fact. I used to say this dickhead thing that some gay people do say, which is, I'm not a gay man. I'm just a man who happens to be gay. You know, really awful cringe stuff. Yeah. And I used to say really homophobic things after I'd come out, almost to kind of prove to my straight friends that I'm not like one of them. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like a middle-class professional who goes to prison for white-collar crime. It's like, I'm not like these other people. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Not, yeah, absolutely. I would say very bigoted things about campness, about being effeminate, things I'm frankly very embarrassed today to think about and that is obviously internal homophobia it doesn't excuse i'm not i didn't say that to any queer people mm. obviously but i would definitely say that to straight friends to basically say i'm still one of you yeah it's a way of ingratiating yourself in with people isn't it yeah definitely because i really remember coming out as bisexual and a female friend saying oh that's great we can go shopping now it's like i hate shopping so i remember <laughs> thinking at the time like i will defy these cliched stereotypes that was a long process to go through. You know, now I don't call myself gay, I call myself queer. Because for me, homophobia is like the bastard child of misogyny and sexism. Because what it's really about is hatred of people defying gender norm. Mm. In The Handmaid's Tale, they're called gender traitors. Because it's seen as like the most treacherous thing you can do in terms of being a man is to be gay. That's like the ultimate, you've betrayed your gender. You've turned your back on what being a man actually is. Exactly. And it's seen as the most degrading thing as a man in the homophobic mindset. So we even saw that, by the way, with straight men who would consider themselves quite enlightened. If someone mistook them, said, oh, I thought you were gay, they would actually be really offended by that. Mm. Like, why do you think that? Oh my God, no, I'm... But then there's the switch side of that in the gay community, though, when someone says, oh, I thought you were straight. And there's a kind of sense of pride in that. It's two sides of the same coin. I had that. I definitely had that. I wrote this piece about this a while ago. It was about Alan Carr. And it was when... He did this advert dressed as a fairy. And I wrote about this, you know, about how I worked out my internal homophobia. There's some gay people like, oh, this will invite homophobia onto us. It's like, what, the f- what are you talking about? Mm. What a horrendous thing to say that homophobes are somehow being provoked into it by our excessive defiance of gender norms. So, yeah, I mean, that took me a long while to process, to see myself as queer as in 
I have defied gender norms and actually that's a good thing because these are gender norms that imprison who we are and actually just stop us being happy with who we are. Mm. When I was a teenager, I was put on antidepressants. I was put on SSRIs and that was definitely to do with the fact that I was panicking about the fact I was gay. Yeah. And I fell mm. in love with a Christian fundamentalist. Good choice. <laughs> that kind of helped. Yeah, it wasn't the best starter pack. <laughs> <laughs> I think what it was, if you're a straight man, you're almost presented with this roadmap of your life. You just follow it. You're going to settle down when you're going to have kids. Mm. And then it's suddenly like your roadmap's taken away from you. Good luck. You know, in your head, you think rejection, you're going to die alone. You're never going to be happy. You see gay people presented as very tragic figures in popular culture, certainly at the time. Mm. AIDS, HIV was still very, very dominant in discourse about being gay. So, you know, it was almost like society is going to reject you. Your friends are going to reject you. You're never going to be happy. You're never going to find someone you love. You're never going to settle down. You're never going to have a family. And all of that was so dominant. So I'm like, I'm going to fit in. Mm. And my straight friends would say to me, actually, you know, this was like 15 years ago, the way you speak about being gay is terrible. Yeah. You need to sort it out. We don't want to hear this kind of homophobia. I don't care if you're gay. It's not an excuse. Mm. That's really amazing, actually, from allies to sit down and say, hang on a minute. <laughs> yeah. That's not how you speak about your own community. That's a really amazing thing to hear, actually. I don't think I've heard many stories like that where straight people have stepped in in defense of you, almost. We know that's not just straight people who internalize homophobia. It's a homophobic society. But that doesn't let people off the hook in terms of agency. Mm. Because obviously... All queer people grew up in a homophobic society, but not everyone obviously responded like I did. So I do need to, without excessive self-flagellation, take some responsibility and agency for that. Yeah. I hope I've more than overcome that. I mean, now it's interesting because I only started getting proper homophobic abuse in my 30s because of social media. And I got gay bashed. You know, there's a guy in prison for homophobic aggravated assault so i mean a massive chunk of the abuse i get is to do with the fact i'm gay and left-wing so they go together so that trial sort of is the culmination i suppose of all of that in your life having gone from a place where you've engaged in behavior that kind of leads towards that sort of outcome Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. is people being physically assaulted to then being the victim in a trial who'd been homophobically assaulted how did you process that i mean because so long since i had that big problem with internalized homophobia I mean, what was unique about when I was attacked on my birthday was that happened outside a pub. I've never, ever before or since have had anyone even being like rude to me, mm-hmm. just randomly in the streets. The others have been around Westminster where far-right activists had intentionally congregated and then saw me and then that was an excuse opportunistically. Yeah. You had a quite troublesome way into your own masculinity not necessarily gay, but were there male role models that you had who the image of them helped you navigate this territory in your kind of formative years? Or did you feel that like you're out on your own a bit? I did feel like I was a bit out on my own because do you ever have this kind of like voice? You're in denial about something and then you've got this voice going deep down, going, you know the truth, don't you? Yeah, yeah. And mm. I think I definitely had this kind of, you know you're gay though, don't you? Mm. And it was just like doing everything you can to suppress that. So I was torn between deep down knowing it and not accepting it. Mm. I loved indie music growing up and I was obsessed with the Manic Street Preachers. Interesting, like Nicky Wire, for example, did actually defy certain masculine world makeup and stuff. Mm. Do you know what I mean, I suppose? Yeah, the Manics are very interesting because they had this kind of mixed fan base that was like gloomy goth fan base. Then there were basically like football rugby type Welsh flag waving guys. And then... Yeah the actual reality of them as you say Nick but actually all of them managed to somehow convey 
ultra masculinity and kind of playful camp in yeah. the which is a thing we've talked about before where bands can do that that maybe no one else can i think that's definitely right because actually a lot of there was a bit like oh design for like, you know you could be like yeah. laddish kind of that song made them like laddish anthem bands but those guys were not actually those people right no they weren't so i think there was definitely something in that and also they appealed to me because they had this political edge. Yeah, of course. In fact, it would be really amazing if you weren't a fan of Magic Street Preachers. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. So I definitely had this, you know, for a while, went through this big indie phase. But also, I think deep down, like George Michael, I remember when he mm. came out and he did that, let's go outside, you know, this big fuck you to them. Yeah. I would never, ever have admitted to it at the time. I definitely had this admiration for him, which only grew as I overcame the internalized homophobia that I definitely had. I read an article that you wrote about your father, not talking about gay people, but in terms of inspirational people. And it seems like a lot of what you do now seems to be quite inspired by what he was interested in and what he pushed for. Would you say that's right? What's that kind of done in terms of your perception of who you are and what you do now? Me and my twin sister were born in Sheffield in 1984. It was during the miners' strike and my dad was very involved in that. You know, he used to take me when I was a kid to miners' rallies and we would babysit by striking miners and their wives. Whenever I go to Sheffield and I've done talks, I'll get miners and striking miners from the period. So I used to babysit you. And they taught us a lot of swear words, apparently, which my parents were not entirely (laughs) happy with. I can imagine. When I started, my mum and dad were worried that I would end up repeating what they thought was my dad's mistake because they thought that actually he could have been an academic or something instead And he threw his life into a cause which was doomed. Mm. And they were worried I'd end up doing the same thing. But I definitely inherited that mantle. Definitely my politics, but also things like US culture. Definitely got that from him. But he was a different universe, you know. When he was six, his dad died of a heart attack Mm. at sea. He was told by my grandmother on the way to school. She just said, your dad's died. Yeah. And then that was it. That's the end of his relationship with his own father forever, yeah. I think because of that, he didn't have an obvious template for being a dad. Mm. But what I remember about my dad was he was incredibly smart, very emotionally invested in the things he believed in. And, you know, he'd always say he was very proud of me as well. I remember when he got cancer and that was very surreal. And it was very bad because he got basically advanced prostate cancer and advanced is not good. Mm. Advance is just never a good word, yeah. Mm. Not the word you want to hear from a doctor. Survivor goes from 80% to 6%. So that's obviously a, a bit of a steep drop. Uh-huh. Two and a half years between being diagnosed and dying. Politics, which is obviously a very important part of me, is mm. wrapped up with my dad. Yeah. And I did, in my head, have a sense of passed on from generation to generation. My great-granddad was in the general strike. My grandfather on the other side joined the communists as a dock worker when the Soviets were invaded by the Nazis, then became a labour activist. My grandmother was a labour councillor. Through my dad, definitely, I had this sense of now the baton has passed on. So when he died, it was very wrapped up in all of that. Mm. And do you still feel like that? Do you feel a function of your masculinity as you see it now is to carry on what your dad represented and fought for? Of course, politics is distinct from masculinity, but it's part of how you understand yourself as a man, that thing of bearing the torch that your dad did. I mean, obviously, I'm a man, so like inevitably that's going to happen. I'd like to think my interpretation is based on... Stuff beyond the gender binaries. Well, of course, but in challenging, often the left and the labour movement can be very macho places. Mm. That isn't welcoming to women, that isn't welcoming often to queer people. And actually, the Trotskyist movement he was part of very much was defined and suffered from that. One of the leading lights in the group he was in, there was this, I don't know if it's an apocryphal tale, but it's a revealing one, was about some young woman saying to this guy, 
what about women's liberation under socialism? And him saying, that's a very interesting question. Why don't you put the kettle on and I'll have a little think about it. But do you think it's still a problem? I and mean, we don't often talk about politics on this podcast, but would you say that still, because uh, it seems kind of counterintuitive, you'd think that inclusivity was pretty hardwired into most of what Labour represents. But of course, that's quite a simplistic way of looking at it. Do you think it's still a problem? Of course. I mean, it dominates all wings of society. The point is the left is not immune from it. And I think sometimes... Right. Do you ever think, I need to be careful here, but sometimes when I see some men with feminists in their Twitter profile, I'm like, okay, okay. Sometimes I'm like, I bet you use that to try and chat out women. I'm such a feminist. <laughs> yeah. The reason I'm saying that is it's easy to label yourself something where you're like, I'm opposed to all oppression. And then because of that, not interrogate how you might be complicit in it. Sure. Sometimes I think the danger is if you're on the left, you think to yourself, well, I am automatically now exempt from all forms of bigotry. I'm already the good guy. Exactly. So how could I ever be sexist? And obviously, that's yeah, not... Yeah. So I think, you know, I mean, the Labour Party's never had a female leader, as has often been said, and that speaks its own story. There are brilliant people on the left who are fighting against all of that. And, you know, the whole point of the left is you want to rid society of all oppression and injustice and suffering. But you can only do that if you've got your own house properly in order. Right. But it's not like the left has uniquely got this problem. It's just that society and the left isn't exempt. Yeah. And the left can't think to itself it is exempt because they're the good guys. You can't do that. Yeah, there's more pressure on the left to set that example, right? Because that's what you're meant to stand for. Yeah. Yeah, how have you found moving into the political sphere as a non, in air quotes, traditionally masculine man? Hmm. Have you found that challenging in any way? Yeah, I mean, it was interesting when I started as a parliamentary researcher because the gay researchers often tended to be the very hardcore Blairite ones I found quite interesting. <laughs> or Tory researchers often working for the most hang and flog MPs who probably want to bring back the 1950s wholesale and they were like quite ostentatiously gay. I was like, I didn't quite understand that at the time. So it's quite an odd place, politics. It was like, you're working for MPs who want to deprive you of your basic civil rights. Yeah, Odd, yeah. very odd. That would be a weird place for a gay person to be, you would think. Yeah, I mean, there's certain times when it feels quite macho and therefore the idea of being a gay guy feels... I mean, it's not as uncomfortable as being a woman. Of course. That comes up a lot. Yeah. I mean, I do think sometimes it's interesting when, in response to my columns, people, including who disagree with me on a different wing of the Labour Party, will often use terms that I don't think they would apply to a straight man. Mm. Like hysterical drama queen, things like that. It's like, mm. hmm. I'm really sorry. It was a dark <laughs> moment in my time. I didn't mean to use those words. I think it's a really interesting area because we haven't really talked about it very much. But what could change it? If that system is so exclusive, to use a word, how do we make it inclusive? What could be done? I mean, I still think, going back to what I said earlier, because homophobia is such a byproduct of sexism and misogyny, that actually... I think the more women's liberation is achieved, the more LGBTQ people will be emancipated. I mean, that's why we're natural mm. allies. Men have changed. Straight men have changed. Obviously, that's not to belittle the huge problems in a country where 1.4 million women face domestic violence a year, 400,000 women are sexually assaulted a year, 90,000 women are raped. And as for sexual harassment, it's just rampant and pandemic in a way mm. which almost all women have encountered. And What's changed, though, is straight men have female friends, particularly younger men. They have gay friends. Like, straight men didn't used to have gay friends. For sure. 
There's more opportunities to meet gay guys these days. Yeah, they're fucking everywhere. They're everywhere. <laughs> well, not here. Christ. I've been single for a very long time. If I could meet some soon, that'd be lovely. <laughs> I met you, Michael. It can happen. See? It can happen. It's true. I wouldn't <laughs> But yeah, I think men of Jay's like, they take more responsibility in childcare that varies, but statistically that's more likely to happen. Uh-huh. They speak more about their things. Mm. Why have men changed? Because women and the LGBTQ rights movement, I think, have changed what it is to be a man. It's being reconfigured. Right. You know, that struggle. They've had to fight to challenge patriarchy. And patriarchy has has had lumps taken out of it, even if it remains an organising principle for society, which it does. Who do you look up to now? Could you name some straight men that you look up to? There's a challenge. Hello. Don't say Mark. Well, I'll see my <laughs> pointless celebrities. <laughs> Richard Osman. <laughs> yeah, Richard Osman. Actually, I've done pointless celebrities twice. The second time, I lost in the first round. It was German place names. Mark, would you have been able to help on that one? Yeah, I would have sorted you out. <laughs> so, obviously Mark. No, I mean, growing up, I've obviously, and this is cliched as a lefty, but Tony Benn was such a gent. I got to spend time with him. I did his last big public event before he died. Such a kind, gentle chap. Always very generous with people. Always very civil. I mean, he was very much a product of his own time, I suppose, in that sense. Mm. Yeah, so I definitely always looked up to him because he was just such a great dude. I mean, today, who do I look up to? Who do you both look up to? (laughs) It's not about me. No, but I want to give... Just because it might... This is the thing. It's not an easy question to answer. But I mean, Michael asked it of me recently because we did an episode where I was the guest. And I basically ended up saying that I tended to take different qualities from different people rather than having a specific person i think as you get older you find it harder to hear or worship specific people i think as i get older mine tends to be my friends yeah and people that i see around me making difference i think we often think of role models as having to be someone in the public eye but role models can be very personal to you in terms of a friend who has a certain quality that you think actually i could be more like that you know definitely okay so my friend steph we met at university so 20 years. 20 years. He's been my rock for a long time. And he's this, he kind of always partly saw himself as looking after me. <laughs> Did joke about being my carer a lot. Anyway, <laughs> he's a very much a straight guy, if that makes sense. You know, he was kind of quite brotherly, quite paternal. If I've ever been in, like, in trouble or whatever, then I would always turn to him, I suppose. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
got quite a big question that has been on my mind since you spoke about masculinity at the very beginning of this episode. And that's kind of near the end. It's not the last question, but it's a big one. So I'm sorry to throw it at you right now. What does masculinity mean to you now? It is a big question. It's kind of the point of the podcast. But I mean, it came to my mind because you spoke about how it felt oppressive and it felt like it was like a size that you had to fit when you were younger. And I wonder what it means to you now that you're a geriatric millennial. To use that phrase, yeah. How it fits you now. It's just, that's what I am. <laughs> the whole point is it's just an infinitely malleable quality. Mm. I mean, that's what gives hope because throughout history, masculinity has constantly changed. And, mm. you know, before the 18th century, women were not banned from voting. Obviously, most wouldn't have been eligible because of their property anyway, but it was by social convention. It was only at the end of the 18th century that was imposed. And what happened in the 19th century is life got much tougher for women and what it meant to be a man became much harsher and that's often obviously referred to as Victorian morality. Mm. And that was obviously very bad for gay people because for a long time before that, the idea you were gay wasn't a thing. That came from the late 18th century onwards. It went hand in hand, you know, the way women were treated and then things getting worse for anyone who defied heterosexual norms. And the point is, throughout history, what it means to be a man has always changed. You know, this kind of codified set of norms that is tagged and there are different forms of masculinity. And it's quite interesting how some get so upset and angry about it. I did a podcast with this great guy who wrote a book about it, about toxic masculinity. That's the expression. That really sets some men off because they're thinking you're mm. saying that masculinity is toxic. It sounds like a judgment on all forms of masculinity. Yeah, Exactly. So they were like, you know, when all kind of male backlash on it, it's like, why are you demonizing men? And obviously... There is a toxic form of masculinity and the toxic form of masculinity is about the oppression of women. It is about the oppression of those deemed to define masculine norms. It is about supremacy. It is about violence. It is about intolerance. It is about not talking about your feelings. It's about never showing any weakness, Mm. that showing weakness is the ultimate affront to what it is to be a man. That is a toxic form of masculinity that everybody, whether they pretend or not, knows is a fact. Mm. Everyone has seen it. But there's other forms of masculinity which are far more inclusive, which aren't about dominance and hegemony and the brutalization of women. And, you know, masculinity is eternally up for grabs. Women have transformed masculinity. Queer people have transformed masculinity without often people noticing. But it's about us constantly challenging those toxic elements to create a far more inclusive and accepting masculinity, which is entirely possible. Yeah. You know, this is not an innate thing. Yeah, toxicity is, of course, not innate to masculinity. It's just a strain of masculinity. Yeah, yeah, and I think that leads quite nicely into the final question that we often ask. Yeah, love it. What three qualities would you like to see in a man it, it, were you to program one from scratch? Ability to show weakness. Mm-hmm. Vulnerability. Vulnerability. Yeah. Not a thing which a lot of men find comes easy to them. Well, it was Margaret Atwood who said, men are afraid that women will laugh at them. Women are afraid that men will kill them. <laughs> yeah. Mm. That is to do with men being terrified of showing weakness or having weakness exposed. Mm, yeah. So definitely vulnerability. That's a bit annoying, actually, because that encompasses being able to be open. Is that the same? I don't think it's quite the same, is it? No, uh, no not at all. Yeah, openness. Is- openness, because, look, the biggest killer of men under 45 is suicide. And a piece that I wrote years ago that made a big impact on me was interviewing men who, thankfully, are survivors. They didn't kill themselves, but they did try. They were all straight men, and they impressed upon me that it, often it was talking about the problems they encountered were seen as unmanly or gay. Stop being such a puff, yeah. mm. etc. Stop being such a woman. So yeah, definitely openness. And then 
Solidarity. I know that sounds a bit like, oh, bloody little lefty throwing in his little clenched fist. It's not what we've had before. It's a nice one. The lefty cliche that defines solidarity is an injury to one is an injury to all. And that means Mm. you look at anyone who's facing some sort of attack as an attack on the collective and you stand by them and look after each other. And obviously that doesn't just have to be a political thing. It's not just, I don't know, uh, workers having their wages cut, that you should stand in solidarity, workers have their wages cut. It's that life is a tough gig, as I said earlier on. And we are in part created by the relationship we have with people around us. And those who flourish in whatever they do, don't do so based on their own pure individual merits or talents, but because of often the collective team effort that exists in their family, their education, the society around them to enable them to do so. You know, so I think solidarity that we look after each other, that no man is an island, an injury to one is injury to us all. Yeah, solidarity is definitely a big thing. Lovely. Solidarity is a nice word that covers a lot of valuable ideas about where we should all be sticking up for each other, basically. And what we've spoken about today is solidarity and sticking up for each other and fighting for one another. That's really lovely. I've got a nice note to end on. Thank you, Owen Jones. It's an honour. You've got a good name that you have to say full name, don't you? It has to be Owen Jones. Well, they didn't try and hide my Welsh roots, did they now? <laughs> no, it's a pretty well-sounding name. <laughs> From the Glyn Peninsula. I've never been there. I was named after Owen Glendua, the anti-English rebel. Robert Owen. <laughs> really? You were always going to be this guy. Owen held a fist up when he said that in solidarity there. Do you know uh, <laughs> The rebel. Uh, Owen, do you have anything to plug? Yeah, we normally ask people, where can you be found online? But your problem is you're too easy to find online. <laughs> <laughs> Please just leave me alone, everyone. <laughs> the vast majority of people online and offline are very nice. So that's not true. True. But there are some who are pretty obsessed. An anti-fandom, as someone described it. <laughs> well, we've been doing, like yourself, a podcast and a video channel over the last few months which has been great because we do documentaries we do interviews and they can find that all on your twitter and things like that yeah exactly it's just type in owen jones podcast or owen jones youtube yeah done boom easy that's what you do well thank you so much owen we'll speak to you soon hopefully yeah lots of love guys that was great it was an honor yeah thanks owen good luck just not being abused too much for the next few days <laughs> try and avoid trending for the next few days cheers guys yeah <laughs> cheers there we have it owen jones bit odd doing this without Michael. Normally Michael and I would now rattle back and forth some sort of a light-hearted banter about the uh, episode, but there's no point in me doing that on my own. So uh, instead, I'll say that I have very much appreciated meeting a couple of listeners during my recent touring. I, I, the other week I said it would be great to meet some people to so make yourself known to me. I'm normally sitting at a little table signing books, sometimes with Coop and sometimes without. I've got my son to do it this week. I mean, I still signed the books. <laughs> that would be taking the piss a bit. Anyway, please do keep um, coming to see me on tour if you would like and are able to. And if you do, make sure uh, to say hello. It's been really great meeting some of you um, in the flesh. On to next week's guest then. Uh, and this is somebody who has been requested more than once by uh, regular listeners. You'll know that on a Patreon and sometimes elsewhere, we ask for guest idea submissions. And this has been a popular one, and rightly so, a fascinating figure I'm delighted to say uh, it's Juno Dawson. Juno was, uh, well, we really, really enjoyed speaking to her, but I don't need to hype it much more because uh, next week, the cheery voice of Michael, well, who knows if he's cheery, he might, he might have been altered forever by the marathon. Michael will be back. Uh, in the meantime, enjoy your week and um, congratulate Michael on Twitter if you can. And oh yeah, please uh, like us and you know rate us and so on on the podcast platforms. It, it does help. Michael's much more open about asking for things like that but once again it's just me here okay you've done enough you better get on with your week we'll all do that see you next monday <laughs>